Week seven, then, of uh, James. Uh, anecdotally, I don't know how true this is, although I guess we could find it out. Steve will know, uh, or he can find it out. Uh, it, it seems to me that more people that are not part of Burlington are listening to this series on James than perhaps previous series. Um, we're kind of cool with that, aren't we, as long as they send us their tithe. Uh, and uh, um, Maybe your tweeting is helping with that. Uh, and when I say people, people are bothering enough to write people either we know or we don't know and say that what we're sharing together in James is blessing them and speaking into their lives. So if for no other reason, uh, get your smartphone out and tweet a bit that we might share the joy uh, around the place. Before we get um, underway this morning, I want to ask you a little bit uh, about last week. Last week, I left you with this challenge at the end. We talked a lot about the the power of words and how words create a a reality, how we need to be careful with our our words because of what they unleash. Uh, And I left you with this. What words could you use to powerful effect in someone else's life? And I asked you to think of what you could say and who you would say it to. So someone that you know, what would the word be that you could speak to someone that would unleash something positive in their lives? Now, just raise your hand really clearly if you did that. Okay, so after last week's sermon, one or two of you, maybe three or four, actually went and did it. So there's a a yes you did. The overwhelming majority didn't do anything about that particular challenge, and you answered no. I want you to turn to your neighbor and explore, if you answered yes, why did you do it? What was it about that particular challenge, or what other circumstances were there that led you to actually go and do something out of last Sunday? Or perhaps most of you will be going um, to your neighbor, a little bit of unpacking, why didn't you do it? Because it didn't seem relevant, because there wasn't an opportunity, or what was it? Why didn't you do that if you could have done it? And then, hands up if you weren't here last week and you're now mightily relieved. Yeah, you see, that's the kind of, there's a body of people that are just suddenly delighted that they weren't here. Okay, we talked a few weeks ago, didn't we, in James, about that you can't just believe without it doing something. Uh, remember all that faith and works dialogue? And uh, we, we looked earlier in James about uh, if you merely listen to the word and all of that stuff. So the challenge of integrating our lives. So, so go, you've just got a couple of minutes. Yes? Why did you do it? Or no? So why didn't you? Go. Okay, keep the conversation going for a moment. If you answered yes, then how did it go? Share with the person, if you're able to. Uh, clearly don't break any confidences or share something you shouldn't. If you're able, how did it go? Uh, and perhaps most important, this question, what, what, might have, what might have helped you do something about it after last Sunday? What might have helped you? What might have tipped the balance for you away from just thinking about it to maybe doing something about it during the week? That very last question, that very last question is probably the crucial question. We as a church 
are to enable, empower each other to faith and good works. Is that not the truth? So, so what do we need to do to help us move towards taking something and putting it into practice? What might you have needed in addition to the Sunday in order to move through to a place of breaking through in that particular area. Now, clearly, not every week the challenge is direct to us. Not every week is everything applicable to all of us, of course. But, but what, what do we need as a church? What do you need as an individual to help you move from this moment, which effectively is the listening moment, into the doing moment? And maybe you've shared something this morning that you think is useful and helpful. Let's have that conversation. Share that back. Feed that back. Even if you don't feed it back, it is crucially important that you as a disciple have in place what you need to move from hearing something and then going to do something about it. My suspicion is that with that particular question, many of us in the room could think of something and someone. And I suspect that most of us in that moment had a really good intention about doing something with it. But, but somewhere the intention leaked a little bit too much for many of us. And it wasn't that we had no idea what to do, it was that we didn't quite move into that place. So really, really, really important question as a disciple, what do I need to make sure that I move from that place of hearing what God is saying to actually doing something about it? Top tip, we need each other in that. What is it that you need in order to make that journey? It's it's a, a reminder that this moment is not enough that this moment is the beginnings of something that we need to take on into our lives in different ways. And the journey of helping us do that is one of the most singly important uh, journeys that we need to try and make as a church. Okay, from heaven or earth, let's pray. Father, as we get into James this morning, would you help us? Would you Speak to us. Would you take these words in that context and help them to become your words for us in our context, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, verse 13 gives us our starting point this morning. If you have a smartphone, then you should uh, have the version app on your smartphone, literally you, Y-O-U version, uh, millions of, uh, not quite millions, uh, probably hundreds of uh, Bible translations. I would start with the English ones if I was you, of which there are a plethora. And uh, on the homepage of that app today, ironically, uh, there is this verse, James, uh, uh, verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you. Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Who is wise and full of understanding? Who's got life sussed? Who knows how it all works? Who really has got to grips 
with the rhythm that this life was intended to bring to us? That's the question. Who's wise? Now, we as those that have found Jesus would like to think that more than anyone else, we have the best shot at being those people who understand how this life works. If we don't understand how this life works, then pity help those who know nothing of Jesus or of his grace in their life. So we aspire, I would hope, to be those who are living in a way that is wise and full of understanding. How's that going? Yeah? That's our aspiration. We believe that Jesus is the answer. It doesn't matter what the question is, Jesus is the answer. That's uh, 101 Sunday School uh, stuff. We learned it there first, maybe. So we come to this verse as those who want to say, James, yeah, we, we think that we've got something here to bring to the table because in Jesus' life, he came to give life to the full. We live in him. Therefore, we, we have something to bring to the discussion. Hang with me a little bit further. True wisdom, James says, and I love the phrase that he uses. True wisdom is demonstrated through the good life. Let them show it by their good life. There are two words for good in uh, Greek. One is more focused on something that is morally or intrinsically good. Uh, You can be morally good uh, uh, and... uh, 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 Many Christians are morally good, but some Christians can be morally good and very boring. Not here in this church, of course, but in other places. We've heard theoretically of people that can be morally good, but you wouldn't really want to spend Saturday evening with them. In any case, they'd be anxious about brushing their teeth and washing their hands and packing themselves off to bed before 10 o'clock. You you understand, There's there's that kind of goodness you know, people that are good, but you wouldn't really want to um, embrace them, so to speak. There's another word that James uses here, which is captured a bit more in our English phrase, the good life. It's not that there isn't moral goodness at its heart, for there certainly is, but the good life that James speaks of here is a, is a life of beauty, a, a life that's joyful, a life that's lovely, a life that's attractive, a life that you go, I, I just want to taste and touch and see and, and share in that life because there is a, a goodness about it. It's a life that people will want, a life that people will be drawn to. So look what James is saying. He's saying, who is wise and understanding? Who's got the right wisdom? If you've got the right wisdom, you will live a life that is good, that's rich, that's attractive, that people are drawn towards, that people will delight in, that people will celebrate and want to embrace for themselves. Which is actually quite a very important distinction when it comes to discipleship making. We're all called to make disciples. We're all called to help people follow Jesus by passing on the life that we live. 
Come with me. That's the discipleship model. Jesus said, come follow me. Come and share in my life. We, in a similar but lesser way, say to people, look, come and share in the way of life that I am learning. To disciple someone is to draw them into the rhythm of your life. The hub, as a missional family, will be seeking to draw people in to their rhythm, both uh, relationally, socially, spiritually as well. To disciple someone is to draw them in. Now, if your life is the first good, morally good but as boring as anything then the likelihood of you drawing somebody into your rhythm is pretty slim, wouldn't you say? Come and share my life with me. It's great. If your life is not attractive to people, you will not disciple anyone. Think about that just for a moment. It's not the whole truth, but it's a thread of truth. If your life is not attractive to people, you will not disciple anyone. Do other people want your life? Think about that for a moment. Do other people want your life? Flip an act. I don't even want my life. Most of you can. <laughs> Do other people want your life? It feels a flippant question, but your life is the gateway to people following Jesus. You're not a perfect example, but you are a living example. And if your life is not good in the fullness of that, the richness of the goodness of which James speaks here, will people ever want to embrace it? You, or indeed the God that you love and serve. Do other people want your life? Back to the slide for a moment. True wisdom brings the kind of life that others want. And I love the next bit that rams the point home and is so in keeping with James. True wisdom is demonstrated through the good life and secondly, by deeds done. By deeds done. It's about what you do It's about the richness of who you are that demonstrates the wisdom that you live by. When we think of wisdom, we think usually of the person that's got wise things to say. But there's something much richer here. There's someone who is demonstrating that they are living in a richness that others will aspire to and long for, to see people that are, that, are, um, that are satisfied deep in their spirit when you yourself are longing for water to quench your own thirst. The message puts it like this. It's about what you do. It's the way you live, not the way you talk, that really counts. James is saying that living with this true wisdom, living... Uh, with that wisdom as the source, produces a life that is rich and good and wholesome to which human beings, to which others around you will be drawn and to which they will aspire. Uh, This last week I've reminded of a question. I, I think it's a really good and helpful question. You might disagree and so ignore the question. Uh, 
that, that helps you just think about, about the way your life gets portrayed in different environments. This is the question, what's your smell? What's your smell? It's nothing to do with uh, Calvin Klein or whatever else you might have used to cover your smell, to mask your smell. What's your smell? What, 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 what aroma do you leave behind? What atmosphere do you bring when you come into an environment? What, what, what um, fragrance is in the air when you speak, when you act, when you relate, when you meet? What's your smell? Paul talks a bit about this as well, doesn't he? When he says about us being the aroma of Christ. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Now look, this is a really important balance to what I said some moments ago. You will live the life that is really attractive and rich and good. And to some people it will look like that. To the one we are an aroma that brings life. To the other, an aroma that brings death. Very important person of peace principle. As you live out this rich, good life, not everyone will be blessed by it. If you're living in the dark and someone who's living in the light comes along, you're not blessed by that light, are you? If you like the dark, then you will scurry for the dark and you will scurry away from the light. And what Jesus invites his disciples to do is to go into an environment and to look for the people of peace, the people that open to you, the the people that welcome you, the people that find your smell, your aroma, your Christ-filled aroma, your rich goodness of life, something that they themselves are drawn towards. Some will not like your smell in Christ. But when we live out of that richness, people that are hungry and thirsty and longing and seeking something beyond themselves will find something in you to which they will be drawn. So there's this true wisdom, James says, this true wisdom that that produces the good life that's demonstrated not by what you say but by the way that you that you live and it's it's welcoming and it's attractive to those that are looking and searching for those that are longing for the light themselves so hold that just for a moment as we dig a little bit deeper or go a little bit further into these uh, verses this true wisdom that produces the life that others will long for But if you look further down in these verses, you can see that there are two different kinds of wisdom. Verse 15, there is earthly wisdom, wisdom that does not come down from heaven, but is earthly. That's compared to verse 17, where you see that there is heavenly wisdom, wisdom that comes down from heaven that is first of all pure. What came home to me in these verses uh, of this time round was the stark contrast between these two wisdoms as James portrays them. 
He, he, he doesn't say there's a kind of, there's a wisdom and then there's a, a better wisdom. He talks about two wisdoms that are actually, at their core, poles apart. Totally different. Wisdom from earth is both unspiritual and demonic. Can you see that there in those verses? Hello? Anybody? Anybody see anything? So there's this wisdom that's earthly, and earthly kind of sounds okay, it's just human, and, and, and James says, no, 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 this earthly wisdom is unspiritual and of the devil and demonic. Uh, so there is a wisdom that, that seems right, that seems good from an earthly perspective, but it needs to be exposed that actually that earthly wisdom that might seem like wisdom from an earthly perspective has as its roots something quite ungodly. In stark contrast, then, there is another kind of wisdom that comes from heaven. Now, I think this is where it's interesting, because if the wisdom from the devil was a kind of wisdom that was obvious to us, we would see that it wasn't wisdom at all and rejected out of hand. What's interesting in these words is there is an earthly wisdom that looks wise, that looks like it's the real deal, but don't be deceived. It's unspiritual and of the devil. And I'm struck by the way James polarizes these two wisdoms, maybe in the same way that Jesus himself polarizes people's response. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, literally, completely change the way you think. Completely change the way you think. We might be tempted to regard becoming a Christian or journeying towards Jesus as being a tinkering with the software. I have my earthly wisdom software and I update it with a bit of Christian, a bit of heavenly wisdom. I give myself an upgrade. It's an add-on. The cost was Jesus' death. It's a pricely add-on, but it's an add-on all the same. Whereas what Jesus says here is very similar to what James is saying in chapter 3, that there isn't a tinkering, there isn't an upgrade, but what we need is a completely new and different operating system. We need a wisdom that comes from a completely different place. Paul, of course, had the same idea. He talks about being transformed by the renewing, the complete reworking of your mind. And I wonder whether we have all too easily and all too often taken our earthly wisdom, given our lives to Christ, and just given ourselves a little update or a little upgrade or a little tweak on our basic earthly wisdom because it seems pretty good to good ordinary people and uh, we've just tweaked. You see, if earthly wisdom was murder people and steal and sleep with your neighbor's wife, we'd spot that a mile off and we'd go, that's not wise. James says it's much more subtle. There is an earthly wisdom, things that generally seem good and wise to people. The wise people of this world would say these things are good and wise, but be careful because that wisdom's not spiritual at all. In fact, it's ungodly and of the devil. 
So, how might this work out in our lives? Uh, How do we go for an upgrade rather than a complete new operating system? We might say, well, I'm a good person and I care for my neighbor. I give to charity. I'm conscientious in my job. I'm passionate about my children's education. I want them to get a good job and be successful and have security in their economic situation and in their uh, social situation. And we would generally say those are really good values. That's a wise way to live, to be honorable, to be responsible, to steward things well, and so on. It's a good wisdom to live by. So, I become a Christian. What change does that create in my life? Because actually, to be fair, I'm quite wise, really. I'm a good person. I care for my neighbor. I give to charity. I'm conscientious about my job. I, I want my, my kids to succeed. I want them to be successful and so on and so forth. So, so when I become a Christian, my, 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 my core values don't change very much, maybe. But I add on, I upgrade into praying and asking God to bless and, and welcoming God into my life and the values that I've got. But this is the killer question. Have my values actually changed or maybe do they need to? I've tried to upgrade, but I've not fundamentally changed my operating system. Notice how James talks about the old wisdom. He says earthly wisdom. So this is wisdom that seems good to us, that if if you saw someone living in that way, you would naturally say, that's a a good, wise way to live. That that person is is living in in a good way. Earthly wisdom, he says, though, be very careful because it's motivated, its underlying source is envy and selfish ambition. Earthly wisdom, our natural operating system, is motivated by envy. I want to be like somebody else. And selfish ambition. I want to be the best that I can be, whatever that takes. These are subtle, aren't they? Because in a sense, we can wrap envy and selfish ambition in Christian wrapping paper. Please don't wrap any gift you give me in Christian wrapping paper, just as an aside. But we could wrap up envy and selfish ambition in Christian wrapping paper. Envy, well, I aspire to be like somebody, and that's he, she's a really good person, and I I want to be like them. Uh, uh, We can do that with our our Sunday school teachers, with our uh, our leaders in our groups, or whatever context we're in. And and so so our, our envy wisdom can be sort of wrapped up in a kind of Christian way. Selfish ambition, similarly, we we want to be ambitious. I want to be ambitious for God. I want to change things. I want to see things happen. It's all for God now, but I'm ambitious. I'm ambitious for my children. I want them to succeed. And and so we, we, we take the values that we had, values of earthly wisdom, and if we're not careful, we simply put a Christian package, Christian wrapping around them. And James says you've got to be really careful because that wisdom is ultimately absolutely and fundamentally opposed to the kingdom of heaven. It's unspiritual and of the devil. He couldn't have put it much stronger, could he? You see, even as Christians, as we wrap up our earthly wisdom When we dig it all away, when we dig up our lives, when, we, when we're laid bare, 
James is saying what you'll still find is that basically you want to be like somebody else. When you dig it all up, what you'll still find is that at the root of it is selfish ambition. And, and, and so we can easily put that in a Christian wrapper. My life, I'm ambitious now for my life as God leads me. I'm ambitious for my family as God leads us. I'm ambitious for my children, my neighborhood. I'm ambitious for my church. But it's all my, my, my. This is what James is trying to strip back in people's hearts at the root of it. If you're really not careful, if you haven't had a major change in your operating system, if you've merely upgraded to Christianity and earthly wisdom still lurks, then you will still be at the center of what you are about you will still be at the center. And it's easy to see that in other people, isn't it, sometimes? You watch somebody else serve. You watch somebody else minister. You watch something, somebody else do something. And you see that the, the, in the midst of the good that they are doing, in the midst of the service that they are offering, they are feeding something within them. Kerry and I entertained a, a national Christian leader, um, uh, a long time ago, you won't be able to identify who it is. Uh, and uh, uh, we, we took this, uh, this, this man out for a, a meal. Uh, and I tell you, his ego was so big, we were rebuilding the restaurant door to get him out. <laughs> and what's interesting, what's interesting is in the midst of a real heart for God, the wisdom that was underpinning was earthly wisdom. And it's all too easy to be like that. And James says if you're not careful, if you, if, if you don't have an, a change in your operating system, if you continue to operate out of this place, then your ego will continually get in the way and you will in the end create disorder and you will uh, be subject, open to, participate in every evil practice. You will align yourself with the unspiritual world that comes from the devil himself. Heavenly wisdom, by contrast then, is pure. And in a sense, there are, there are six, seven other adjectives that describe it, but it's not that those are, aren't important, but they, they just naturally follow when you begin to live out of, human wis, uh, out of heavenly wisdom that has one single motive and pure focus, God. That's the operating system change that every Christian needs. That the focus of life completely changes away from me to him. Laying down self, as James is talking about, is not too dissimilar for some words of Jesus. Surprise, surprise. Given they were brothers, you would imagine that they would share the same things from time to time. Deny self, take up cross, and follow me. Out of which wisdom are you living? The one that ends in disorder, or the one that ends in a harvest of righteousness? You see, it, it, it's a subtle change, but it makes a massive difference. If you think about um, parenting, perhaps for a moment, 
Well, what do you want for your kids? You want them to get a good education, and you want them to have a good job, and you want them to be uh, uh, the best that they can be, and you want them to feel safe and secure, and you want them to uh, uh, live a life that, that in some way mimics the, the good things that you felt and enjoyed, and, and so on. That's earthly wisdom. And there's nothing wrong with those things, maybe, in themselves, in their right place. Of course not. But, but imagine a heavenly wisdom where you were sold out for God and what you wanted for your children more than anything else is for them to be radically devoted to Jesus. Before all those other things, what you wanted was for them to be radically devoted to Jesus. Now, at the beginning, it looks quite the same. You're, you're feeding into each other. All of that is good earthly wisdom But if that's all we ever did, what on earth happens to the family on mission and to the family that's learning to take risks and to the kids that are growing up, learning that they don't exist for themselves, but they're to be those that reach out to others? And so what looks like the same wisdom at the beginning takes you into very different places if you are not careful. And James says, look, you've got to understand that things that seem really good from an earthly point of view to hem your family in, to protect it, to keep it safe, if you are not careful, actually comes from the wrong place. And you end up building something that is not for God's kingdom, despite its earthly wisdom. And we can think of all kinds of examples. So think about the way that you go about your job. Think about why you have your job. What motivates you to do the job that you do? What, what does your job give you? Why are you committed to that particular sphere of life? What about serving in the church? Why do you serve in the church? What does serving, that moment when you should be giving to others, actually give to you? And which string is really pulling you? Sometimes we can all see, can't we? But it becomes all too easy for that moment where I should be giving to become the moment where I'm actually needing it to receive. And it comes out of this earthly wisdom, this envy, this selfish ambition. What are the key issues in your decision-making as a person, as a couple, as a family? What are the, what are the factors that, that speak about where you live, the rhythm of your life? The, the things that you invest in in your neighborhood. What, what, what's motivating those decisions? What's under the bonnet? What's the real wisdom that's lurking beneath? And James says, look, earthly wisdom, doesn't matter how much you upgrade, doesn't matter how much you put a Christian gloss on it, doesn't matter how you wrap it up in Christian terms. If when you strip it all away, you're building your life on earthly wisdom, it will take you to a place that you never wanted to go. So is there an area of your life where actually you're motivated by envy? I want to be like someone else. Is there an area of your life where you're motivated by self? I I, I need this for me. And suddenly we see there are signs of worldly wisdom right under 
our nose? Where would the Spirit speak to you this morning? Let's be quiet.